Welcome to Nature Bets Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This August 4th, 2020 edition, episode 141 of Nature Bets Last, comes to you from Rakindo Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and from Central Florida in the not very United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm joined by Guy McPherson. In addition, we have a guest for today's show. Guy, would you do the honors, please? Thank you, Kevin. We are delighted to have Dr. Sid Smith on this show. Dr. Smith is former co-chair and current secretary of the Green Party of Virginia. He holds a PhD in mathematics, and he is a writer and small business owner in central Virginia. His website can be found at bsydneysmith.com. That's B as in beta, S-I-D-N-E-Y. S-M-I-T-H dot com. He is known at YouTube University for presentations titled Humanity, the Final Chapter, that from March 2018, and How to Enjoy the End of the World from March of 2019. Dr. Smith, welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Sid, I first came upon your work via your excellent YouTube presentation titled How to Enjoy the End of the World. What pushback did you experience from your academic peers? As Guy and I both know, people prefer a, prefer a convenient lie to an inconvenient truth, especially on the subject of entropy and collapse. Well, uh, my talk wasn't really presented uh, as an academic talk. It was presented really as a, something for the Green Party. Um, and, uh, of course, my field is mathematics, so... My colleagues in that field are largely indifferent to anything outside the realm of that mathematics. Um, I suspect that if you ask them, most of them wouldn't know about it. Yeah, that's the classic response of science being so siloed, where everyone has their specialties. And because of the, the structure of commercial science and, and capitalism, everyone seems to just be in their own field. And there doesn't seem to be interreaction about how the consequences of one science affects the consequences of another. Well, academics don't really have the freedom to generalize until very late in their careers because they have to fight for tenure and to publish and, 
and that means pursuing you know uh, ever narrowing paths of possibility. Um, so it's it's pretty rare to run into people who generalize um, the way that scholars used to do, say, a hundred years ago, uh, in the modern university setting. Yeah, I would argue, in fact, that that trend continues well past tenure. There are essentially no rewards for taking a generalist-style approach and plenty of rewards for staying within one's own silo. At least that was my experience. Yes, quite true. I would agree. Yeah. So in the July 4th, 2020 essay, so that's just not very long ago, that's a month ago today, you posted Mm -hmm. on your blog something titled Socialism and the Green Party. And you write there about the great unraveling of the socioeconomic system. Quote, this process is most likely to unfold in a stair-step fashion with a general decay punctuated by shocks like the 2008 financial crisis and more dramatically such as is now occurring with the coronavirus that forced the sudden destruction of businesses, institutions, and communities while the periods in between provide some measure of stability and even modest recovery, end quote. Sorry for that long quote. Mm-hmm. So this this conclusion seems to counter the abrupt nature of climate change that results from the loss of aerosol masking, or at least is projected to result as a result of aerosol masking. So, and, and I know the aerosol masking effect is too convenient for most people to talk about. So will you comment on it? Because you're not most people. Well, I know that it's a primary concern of yours. And so uh, I did quite a bit of reading in the last couple of weeks as I was thinking about this interview. Um, of course, I read the, the post that you've had about it over the last couple of years. Um, and I also read a number of papers and, you know, sort of what is the scientific consensus and so on and so forth. Um, I, my takeaway has not been nearly as uh, grim as, as yours has been. Um, I think that First of all, industrial, the industrial system isn't going to stop on a dime. Um, but, but even if it did, you know, the, the amount of sulfates and so on that we've been pouring into the atmosphere has been declining for quite a while, starting uh, probably in the United States with the, uh, with the Clean Air Act in the 1970s. Um, so when you combine all of the information that's available and see what has already occurred, um, it's conceivable we could have a sudden... Uh, jump um, regionally uh, in places like China and in in Europe Um, and in a longer term because of course the climate system has an enormous amount of inertia so it takes it it takes time even for a a large effect to uh, to be felt we could see a one degree uh, or or slightly more increase overall is what I'm reading the science is saying but I think it's important to note that that's one end of an interval estimate um, you know, I teach statistics, so uh, or I did before I retired, and it's, it's always very difficult to get students to wrap their heads around what an interval estimate actually means. Most of the interval estimates are about 0.25 to 0.1 degrees centigrade as the masking effect. What that means is that there's a 95% probability that the real number lies somewhere between 0.25 and about, point, about 1.0, and you can't know where in there it lies, and it might be, you know, that this is that one time in 20, that 5% where it falls outside, either below 0.25 or above above 1.0. And this really points to a larger issue with the climate. Um, We have so much uncertainty 
uh, about a lot of these influences. So, yeah, that's very hard for people. It's hard to live with uncertainty. You want to have certainty about what's going to happen. But what I'm seeing from the science is, yeah, it's a concern, but it's not, to my mind, a near-term extinction concern uh, from what I'm reading. Well, I certainly hope and wish that you're reading it more correctly than I am. Um, moving on, in your presentations that we've already mentioned, you mentioned several means by which global industrial civilization could co collapse quite abruptly. Mm -hmm. will, will you recount them for our audience, including such topics as peak oil, peak everything, and other potential drivers of collapse? Well, so let's start with what I consider the most dire and near-term threat to human life on the planet. Uh, and that has nothing to do with climate and nothing to do with the economy. It has to do with the fact that we've got deadly weapons pointed at each other, thousands of them, which if they're used, will extinguish life on the planet PDQ. Um, and that is uh, a sword that's been hanging over our neck, uh, especially since the 60s. Um, and it has not gotten better in recent decades. It has gotten worse. So if you look at... Um, the, uh, the doomsday clock and the folks who run it and the, and the information that they provide. And I think uh, Noam Chomsky has done a very good job at, at uh, cataloging some of the near misses we've had. Um, that, you know, if, if I'm going to find myself staying up at night worrying whether I'll be alive next week or next year, um, that would certainly be at the top of my list uh, and, and will continue to be. And, and it's a danger that will get worse as social disruption increases rather than than better. Uh, so that's what I consider to be the greatest threat. Now, moving on to the things that I've actually written about, um, I think that if the industrial system were to continue as it is now, and certainly if it were to expand as, as um, capitalists, I think it's a fantasy, but as capitalists believe that it still can, um, then I think climate change could do us in, because I think we would see even conservatively speaking, at least a four or five C temperature rise before the end of the century. Um, that's what the science seems to be saying. Uh, if the industrial system were to continue and that, I don't know if there'd be any humans left or not, but if there were, they wouldn't have any resource base with which to form a civilization. So uh, I think humanity in a meaningful sense um, as, as human civilization would be ended by that. Um, my own view, and, and it's one that I have been pleased to come to because, you know, I, I've thought about it a lot in the last 10 years, and, and like many climate scientists, I have felt grief over, over what we're facing with the climate. My own view now is that industrial civilization is already collapsing uh, and that, um, that we're headed into a very steep decline economically. And within 10 to 20 years, we'll be using a tiny fraction of the energy that we're currently using, which means putting a tiny fraction of the carbon that, for example, the IPCC based its projections on uh, into the atmosphere. So I have no idea what's going to happen. And it's certainly possible that we could still be facing uh, extinction within a, within a generation or two. Um, but I think there's reason for some cautious optimism that with the crash of industrial civilization, with the collapse of industrial civilization, we may in fact buy ourselves the opportunity for a new adaptive cycle where we kiss goodbye to the old civilization and begin to build something very, very different on a 
drastically reduced energy base and, of course, with a drastically reduced population. That's just speculation, but I think the science supports that speculation as much as any other. Uh, and I think it's important for us to focus on the fact that uh, industrial civilization is reaching exactly the limits that the Club of Rome um, predicted back in, in the early 70s. Um, so the crash is now upon us and is going to accelerate very quickly. That ex existential threat of nuclear, uh, the use of nuclear weapons, was the one that I grew up with. I've been mm -hmm. an anti-nuclear activist, and I was born in 1960, so when I was 19, I was an anti-nuclear activist trying to stop the French nuclear testing in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. I hope you won't hold it against me, but I got arrested once for obstructing a nuclear ship in the course of its passage. Good on you. <laughs> But um, one of the things that I, I really think that's linked to uh, the collapse of industrial civilization and the nuclear issue is the 450 nuclear power stations we have around the planet that need constant attention. And right. worse, worse than the nuclear meltdowns will be the spent fuel pool fires. Mm -hmm. Those, mm -hmm. the, the, those uranium pellets are enclosed in zirconium tubes. It's an alloy. All alloys burn if you get them heated hot enough. Mm -hmm. now, we just barely escaped a spent fuel pool fire at Fukushima Daiichi nine years ago. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's getting a lot of everybody. Yeah, well, one of the things Guy and I've been saying about what you know, people say, what can we do? Because we're over the cliff, and I believe what you said is right. I think we are in collapse. I think it is, is unfolding. It's just in the early. Um, slow build of momentum. But what we've been saying is if that we could do one thing, it would be to get as much of that enriched uranium into dry casts ASAP so that we could mitigate the amount of um, ionizing radiation that we leave on the planet after we've disappeared. But of course, very because yeah, we, we haven't great. achieved anything in, in moving the dial on this urgency of the situation, Capitalism just carries on with business as usual. No matter how bad the prognosis is, just people like you and I, it's extraordinary. It is. Um, you know, about those uh, nuclear power plants, you know, if they all melted down at once, that would be uh, a horrific uh, occurrence. I, I, don't, uh, I don't know that it would extinguish uh, life on Earth. Um, just thinking about the explosions and meltdowns that we already know about and what effects they had. Um, but of course, that would, that would occur in the event of a sudden, complete and total collapse where the grids all went down and so on and so forth. Um, the kind of thing that would happen, for example, if there was a nuclear exchange. Um, so it would certainly, would certainly follow on uh, that kind of an event. Um, the mere collapse of, of industrial civilization doesn't eventuate in that because it doesn't happen that suddenly. Um, so uh, while I think the risk of nuclear accidents will continue to increase and we may see some horrible things, um, it, the mere collapse of industrial civilization simply points to a more rapid shutdown and, as you say, uh, attempting to try to find some way uh, to, to safely uh, dispose of in some manner or another. Um, the processed uranium is there. One of the concerns I have with nuclear is as the planet heats up, the only way that I know to cool it down is effectively a nuclear winter. 
And I think that someone could come to the conclusion that that was a tactic to follow. It would be very easy to smuggle a nuclear weapon into a country like Iran and detonate it, point the finger at them and say, look, they were making weapons and it's gone mm -hmm. bad for them. Mm -hmm. And then they could measure immediately the amount of cooling. It would be an experiment that the kind of lunatics we have at the top of the food chain in capitalism, it's the kind of experiment that they could easily conduct. That's quite possible. It's terrifying. Yeah, I agree. I think, though, that, uh, you know, if, if wisdom prevails, um, then the, the right thing to do is going to be to... to um, to try to continue to bring down the uh, amount of aerosols we're putting into the atmosphere, even knowing that it will um, cause an increase in in the uh, forcing from carbon dioxide that we already have, but that forcing is going to be there regardless. So it doesn't make any logical sense to uh, continue to make the situation worse in the medium term in order to save us a little bit in the short term. Uh, I think we're far better off bringing those aerosols down as quickly as we can. Oh, you're being far too logical now. <laughs> That's the trouble, you know. A lot of us look at the at the dystopian leadership we have around. And for me, that that sort of proves to me about how off track we are and how the people at the top are so disconnected from the reality of our predicament. For me, it looks like Rome burning. Oh, it's very much like, I mean, Rome is an excellent analog for what we're going through. And, and people have known that for a long time, um, you know, that, uh, that in many respects, not in all respects, of course, but in many respects, our situation is, is quite reflective of the Roman Empire, the Western Empire, and what it went through, uh, you know, from about 400 to, uh, to 500 AD. It's an incredible predicament to find ourselves in, isn't it? Imagine how daunting this is for young people, Sid. You know, you and I have had good, full lives and got to this stage in our life. But for young people looking down the, the, the barrel of what's coming down on them, I think for managing their grief and managing our own grief is going to be one of our greatest challenges going forward. One of the things that I've been focusing on in my talks, and you probably noticed it in How to Enjoy the End of the World and, and, uh, and maybe a little bit in some other things, um, we have this mythos of inevitable human progress and of, of technological miracles, um, very much inculcated by popular media, you know, starting in, in, at least in the United States, I think back to, you know, the Flash Gordon movies back in the 30s. Um, you know, this, this fantastic future we're all somehow supposed to be moving to. And it has masked for us um, a reality that most human beings have lived with throughout history, and that is that life is extraordinarily precarious. It has never been a matter of, of you know, humans were, were safe and, and, and just going to inevitably move on. Most people in most places at most times in history have been only too painfully aware of how contingent and how precarious their lives and that of their communities were. Um, so we're sort of reverting, uh, as, as they like to say, regressing to the mean in that respect. This isn't something new in human history. This is just the way things have always been. And uh, so one of the things that I think is helpful for people and, and maybe helps them contextualize the grief that they feel um, is to understand that, that, that this isn't something like we had something and we've lost it. And, you know, we had this beautiful human future and somehow we managed to fumble the ball. 
No, not at all. Um, we are the same kind of human beings who have always lived, and and it's always been a precarious existence, and it always will be, and someday it'll be over, and and maybe it'll be in this century, and maybe it'll be in a thousand years. No one can know, um, but you know those folks who were sitting sipping their drinks when Vesuvius went off, um, you know it was over for them very suddenly, and uh, it, it's going to be over very suddenly for a lot of other people at different times and in different places, and that's the normal mode, right? That's that's how nature is for all creatures at all times. So if you're if you are embracing life and living in the present and living in the now, it's still disturbing to know about climate change and civilizational collapse and so on and so forth, but it doesn't have to overtake your life. And it shouldn't overtake your life. You should be willing to live as fully as you would have done regardless. Um, and, uh, and always aim to do so. I One of the things that I found in our community where we're talking about collapse is that for a lot of us, it's made it easier to go forward, the acceptance. Because you mm -hmm. know, for years, I was trying to fix everything. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. now that I know that we've gone off the cliff, you know, you and me are like Thelma and Louise having this discussion after, after one of us put the pedal to the metal and drove off the cliff. Right. Listen, another thing I'd like to discuss is that the two parallel universes that we seem to be living in, there's the real economy, which is completely and utterly tanking globally mm -hmm. around the world, mm -hmm. and then there's the digital economy, where money is just created out of the ether. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I talked about Rome burning. Well, this is exactly what happened. In the mm -hmm. Roman Empire, where they, they debase their currency. Mm -hmm. Every mm -hmm. morning I wake up and I turn my computer on and I'm surprised that the biggest economic crash of all time hasn't happened when I've been in, asleep. And I think that that is actually underway. And then there, with all this helicopter money of collapse. They're doing the only things they know to do. Um, because what are the options? I mean, the options are to uh, let a general default occur or to try to prevent it. Um, and if you're one of the people who's in charge, if you're a, a, a head of the Federal Reserve Bank or the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan or in one of these heads of state, um, obviously a general default is something you have to try to avoid. Um, but I think these people know that, you know, just like, like death and taxes, um, in a system like ours where we're continually creating new ways to make up imaginary money, a general default is inevitable. And so, uh, unlike you, I, I keep expecting to see it almost on a daily basis. I'm, I'm actually more realistically now, I think probably once we move into uh, September, October, I'm thinking here of the United States primarily, but, it, but also, of course, that will um, be connected to everyone else. As we move into September, October, and it becomes clear that the coronavirus is only going to get worse and worse and worse, um, that we've got another year of this to get through, um, then I think at some point folks are going to wake up in the morning and say, I'd better start taking my money out of this stock and that stock and that asset and this asset. And as soon as that begins, um, it's going to be probably the most remarkable crash we've ever seen. 
Um, so I, you know, I, I really don't expect it tomorrow morning, but I expect to see it sometime in the next 60 to 90 days. Now, it'll be really interesting to see if we don't have that, how they manage to avoid it. They'll have to think of something new. Uh, I don't know what it will be. I have a few. I have a few dots I want to connect here. A few pieces of information from the peer-reviewed literature. Yeah. So Tim Garrett is an atmospheric scientist at the University of Utah who has published at least four peer-reviewed papers indicating that industrial civilization is a heat engine. Doesn't matter how we power industrial civilization, solar panels, wind turbines, whatever, it heats up the planet. Now, yeah. How how. How hot, how soon? According to a paper by Burke and colleagues published December 26th, 2018, Proceedings National Academy of Sciences, we're headed for the Pliocene as early as 2030. And the Pliocene was more than two degrees C warmer than we are right now. I can't imagine a situation in which humans or much other life on Earth is willing to or is capable of adapting to that kind of rapid change. Now, third piece, Gregory Jasko, the former head of the NRC turned whistleblower, indicates that it takes five or six decades, once the money is available, to decommission a single nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that since 2030 is 10 years away, not five or six decades away, that we could be in serious trouble with respect to nuclear contamination tack on a paper from this year in Frontiers of Plant Science by Mossad and Moeller indicating that ionizing radiation at a relatively minor level could kill all plants on Earth. And of course, plants are really useful for those of us who like to eat. So I know that's a lot. Can you Maybe take that in and tell me what what we could do and what you think we will do societally in response to those um, dire dots that I've just thrown out there. Well, so let me start with the first one. I think you're exactly right. Um, and, and this is a point that I made probably more forcefully than I have before in this August 4th, uh, sorry, the July 4th essay that you alluded to on socialism and the Green Party. Um, it doesn't matter as far as the effects of industrial civilization, whether it's powered by this energy source or that one. Um, it's, uh, and the reason it doesn't matter is because even though if we had an energy source that did not put more carbon into the atmosphere, nonetheless, the use of energy um, is going to cause entropy in the physical environment. So we're going to be burning through um, a quickly dwindling stockpile of resources that we need in order to maintain human civilization. And the, the example I used in the paper was iron. Um, now, as to, as to global warming, um, I don't think so much in terms of adding heat to the atmosphere because um, uh, heat radiates pretty quickly. Um, so if you if you warm up the planet uh, a little bit, then uh, we it immediately starts radiating more heat into space. The reason we have global warming is because we've thickened the blanket of the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. You know, it's like it's like stuffing uh, goose down into your duvet. It makes it trap heat better. Um, but it's still the case that if we start adding more heat 
um, then that heat is still going to radiate out into space. So I don't really think in terms of that so much, but I do think it's a very important point that the energy source itself doesn't really matter in terms of even our near-term sustainability for this industrial civilization. Um, so moving then to the, um, to the power plants, yeah, to decommission, uh, properly decommission a nuclear energy plant, my understanding is it takes a long time and a whole lot of money. Um, and that's a serious problem. Um, on the other hand, um, taking the fuel out um, and spreading it out so that it can't uh, melt down. I'm not a nuclear physicist, so I don't know exactly the details. Um, but shutting down, safely shutting down a nuclear power plant is a different thing from decommissioning the power plant. Decommissioning the power plant means tearing everything down and, and decontaminating everything and finding safe storage and storing all the, the fuel. That's a, that's a big expensive thing. But shutting down a nuclear power plant, that's, that's not exactly the same thing. That's just getting the fuel and everything into a state where it won't uh, go into an uncontrolled reaction. And that's something that can be done, I'm sure, uh, on a much shorter time frame. Um, and, the, and the third dot that you mentioned was, remind me. Hmm. Civilization is a heat engine. Burke and colleagues indicating we're headed for the Pliocene as early as 2030. Right. So let me let me address that. Um, I I do indeed think that uh, it's quite possible that we could be headed toward um, more than a two degree centigrade rise in the near term. I don't know about 2030, um, but certainly well within the lifetimes of people living. Maybe even within my lifetime. I'm like Kevin. I'm 60. Um, so it's, it's quite possible. Um, and what I suspect that that means from what research I've done and, and, and all of the, you know, and it's, it's hard because there are so many scientific fields here. And as was pointed out earlier, uh, you know, they're all silos. So you have to sort of try to form a synthesis and there aren't a lot of people doing this. But if you, if you look at evolutionary biology and you look at eco, uh, ecology and uh, you put that together with climate change and so on and so forth, it's clear that the current rate of extinction is only going to get worse. Um, and ecosystems are going to be crashing left and right. Um, they're already crashing. Um, that's a different thing from extinction, just as evolution is a, is a different thing from adaptation. They're certainly related. Evolutionary changes are generally adaptive. Um, but organisms can adapt without evolving, simply, for example, by um, uh, migrating to a different biome, right? So if it's gotten five degrees too hot at this elevation, they move up the mountain a little bit. Now, that's going to disrupt all these ecosystems, and I think ecosystems are going to continue to fall apart. And that has very dire implications for human civilization, because we, we rely very heavily on ecosystem services. Um, but I don't think it necessarily means the extinction of life on Earth. In fact, that would be very surprising given the trials and tribulations that the planet has already been through, uh, and here we all are. So, you know, I, I think it's quite bad enough. Um, I don't see it as, as uh, you know, all of a sudden this is a bare rock uh, floating through space. That, that doesn't seem consistent with what we know about the history of, of, the, uh, of the biosphere. A couple of comments that I would like you to respond to. Sure. The, paper by, the paper by Burke and colleagues uses the representative concentration pathways of the IPCC, so it ignores all self-reinforcing feedback loops mm -hmm. and 
and the aerosol masking effect. So it's an extremely conservative approach. It has us going to the mid-Pliocene as early as 2030. And, okay. and I already forgot what the other thing I was going to say was because I'm old. <laughs> I understand. Um, believe me, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm not a climate scientist, and, and I, I, I'm very loath to make predictions even about things I know about. You know, it's like Niels Bohr said, that prediction is difficult, especially of the future. Um, but I think it's clear that the temperature is going to continue to increase in the short term and in the long term. How high? Don't know. I mean, it's been really interesting for me to read recently, actually, on uh, uh, Arctic, uh, what is it, the Arctic blogspot.com, Sam Carana's site? Yep, Sam uh, Yeah, it, it was very interesting to read there recently, uh, the scientist who was talking about stadial events. Um, and I live in central Virginia, which is the mid-Atlantic states in, in North, uh, North America. Um, and... Uh, it's been very interesting for us as the economy, as the uh, climate has shifted, because uh, there's been a slowdown in the uh, Atlantic uh, overturning circulation, um, and the consequence for that has been a cooling of the North Atlantic, uh, especially on the western side. Um, and so, while our winters have gotten warmer, I haven't had to to do much snow removal the last two or three years. Um, our summers have not gotten hotter, and everything has gotten a great deal wetter. Um, and, and it's a reminder that uh, the planet's climate is unfathomably complex. And one of the consequences that we could conceivably see, um, and it's kind of a race right now, maybe, if that's what's going on between uh, a blue water event in the Arctic and, and this effect, um, is this cooling of this region of the planet while the rest of it uh, gets too hot. Um, so it, it, my point there is just that it's such an enormously complex and difficult to understand system. And even if we did understand it fully, still as a complex system, we wouldn't be able to usefully predict in the long term how it's going to behave, no more than we can the weather. So um, is two degrees by 2030 conservative? I honestly don't know. Um, but when I look at the balance of information available, and Fortunately, a lot of these folks are making their research uh, available everywhere. Um, there's a, a spectrum of possible outcomes, and the worst of them are pretty dire. Uh, I don't think they mean, you know, the extinction of all life on Earth, but they're pretty dire. They could well mean the end of the human experiment. Um, but that's at one end, again, of, a, of a, a range of possibilities, and I don't know any more to say about it than that. Well, we've been ignoring the precautionary principle for so long that I don't think most people even remember what it is. No, it's one we should definitely be, be applying here. You know, it was 1989 when the director of the United Nations Office, the Environment Program, concluded that we had 10 years to turn mm -hmm. this thing around. Mm -hmm. It was the mm -hmm. Secretary General of the United Nations who said we have until the beginning of 2020, that was about 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. It was the United Nations keep, advisory keep the temperature conference. rise within, a, within a, uh, a, a limit that would prevent the, you know, serious disruptions. Right, the self-reinforcing feedback loops mm -hmm. that we've already triggered at least five dozen of. Mm -hmm. They're underway right now. 
It was it was the United Nations Advisory Group on Greenhouse Gases in October of 1990, indicating that we can't we can't approach one degree above the 1750 baseline. We're mm -hmm. at two degrees above the 1750 baseline, and we keep changing the baseline. Mm -hmm. There's this enormous amount of shifting of the baseline that is going on that is abjectly dishonest by climate scientists and governments around the world. Could you comment on that aspect, on the shifting the baseline idea and why it why it's being done and where it I'm takes us? I'm just trying to, to research that because I, I know it's an important point for you. And um, it, it is, I mean, it, this is an important point. It is difficult to nail down um, the, the information, you know, exactly how much has the planet warmed and since when? Um, because there, you know, there are a lot of goalposts, and depending on where you set them, but there's also a lot of uncertainty, and I always come back to that because uh, uncertainty matters. Um, we can't. I mean, the precautionary principle applies. We should know what the boundary uh, uh, conditions are. You know, what are the worst cases? We should know that, and we should we should plan as though those were going to happen. Um, but nonetheless, we shouldn't forget that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, and there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty even in figuring out how much the planet has warmed uh, and where the heat has gone. You know, we found out just a few years ago that the oceans have, have soaked up a lot more of the heat than we realized they had. And, and those kinds of things are very important. Um, so uh, trying to answer your question, um, I don't think that there's anything we can do in the sense of and this is the point that I make in the, in the July 4th paper on, on socialism and the Green Party. Um, civilization isn't something that you can conduct like an orchestra. You can't make it do things. Um, groups of people and, and nations and, and democracies and autocracies can make decisions about things to do and try to do them. Um, but for the most part, it's out of anybody's hands. Um, because it's just physics and thermodynamics, you know, it's a, it's a dissipative system and it's an emergent system and it's going to do what it does. Um, this was a theme that I really hammered in this paper, you know, it's not just that what we've done is tragic, what we've done is a tragedy and there's a distinction to be made. Something tragic, you know, if it's just a tragic thing, maybe if you'd made better choices, we often speak in that language nowadays, if you just made better decisions when you were younger, you know, things would have turned out differently. But the Greeks, I think, understood human nature very well, and they realized that very often it's not just tragic, it's a tragedy. And the tragedy means that it's inherent in our nature to be and to become what we are and have become, and, and, and therefore it's inherent in our nature what's going to happen to us. Um, and industrial civilization, once we discovered the heat engine and had access to all that fossil fuel, there's probably nothing that could have been done to prevent that unfolding in exactly the way that it did. But similarly, there's probably nothing that can be done to prevent its very near-term collapse. And that is something that none of the IPCC or any other of the um, climate projections have really started to, to think about or to take into account. And that is the fact that industrial civilization is going away. And it's started already, and the decline is going to pick up speed. And that throws all those projections, really, um, right out the window, because they all assume uh, a continuation of industrial civilization on some terms, right? Whether it's renewable energy or, you know, negative emission technologies or 
any of these other things that somehow we're just going to continue to make it possible for seven or eight billion people to live on the planet in the way that they do right now. And that's never going to happen. It's going away very quickly. And that means that the future for the climate uh, is a complete unknown in many respects because all those projections are based on things that aren't going to happen. Which is why the evolutionary biologist amongst us is more concerned than most of us because he understands the significance of extinctions and the Jenga approach. You know, you've spoken about Jenga. I've written yeah. about, uh, about that we're playing the greatest game of Jenga in history, and we can all see the pile starting to, to shake. Hey, I, I would like to get back to one more part about your essay, uh, Socialism and the Green Party. And yeah. uh, for your information, I'll embed it in, the, in uh, my post on my website, which we'll get out to our social media circles. But right. in, it, in it, you say, quote, the value to the economy of a barrel of oil is an, is an amount that is equivalent to 11 years of human labor. Hmm. Supposing a minimum wage of $15 per hour, that is more than $330,000 worth of work, end quote. Mm -hmm. I think that observation exposes our absolute addiction to fossil fuels. Oh, yeah. You know, we can't, people don't understand how much energy a barrel of oil is giving us. Well, and it's going to become... It's going to become more apparent quite soon, you know, because the oil industry in the West is going to have to be nationalized. Um, this is this is something that I think few people are, are quite aware of, but there's an excellent blogger in the oil industry in the United States by the name of Art Berman. Um, he's worth looking up and he's worth reading. Um, and he has recently made this prediction. And, and the reason is because the financial system can no longer exploit the exploitation of oil. Um, but it still has the exact same value that it's always had, namely all that potential work. Um, and so one of the steps in this decline that I suspect is going to be happening fairly soon is we're going to see a huge wave of bankruptcies and um, uh, nationalization of the oil industry in most countries uh, and in most sectors. Because uh, even in managing the decline, uh, it's still going to be necessary uh, to, to try to exploit some of that energy, even though it can't be done profitably. Now, the, the snare here is... The, the fact that it's not economical to do in the private sector means it's not really economical to do in the public sector either. So nationalizing the oil industry will probably just be one step in the in the full-on collapse of that energy capture strategy. Um, so my own guess, and, and I think I, I really don't see any way around this, so it's not really a guess, my own conclusion, uh, is that nine-tenths of the fossil fuel energy that still remains to be exploited is going to remain buried. Stranded assets. Yeah. It's um, just too expensive to get to. Yeah, you've spoken before about uh, the work of Gail Tveberg. I'm not quite sure, sure how to pronounce her name. She's an mm -hmm. actuary. Yeah. And Ellis Friedman is another woman who has absolutely nailed this issue of, mm. of resource issue. That, you know, everyone's got, our whole capitalism is based around the infinite growth paradigm. And both of those women have written extensively about how that does not compute. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I follow Gail quite assiduously. I'm not sure I'm familiar with the other woman. What was her name? Alice Friedman. 
Mm. I'll see you to her website. She's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I'd like that. Cool. You know, I would argue that nationalization of the fossil fuel industry has already occurred in the United States. We have mm -hmm. a corporatocracy here. We have a, a complete merging of the corporations, especially the fossil fuel corporations, with the governments. So I don't anticipate that happening in the future. I think it happened decades ago. Well, I think that might be useful to make a distinction, though, because we certainly have corporate capture of, of government decision making, and that's been true you know, increasingly all throughout our adult lifetimes. Um, a terrific paper out of Princeton uh, just a very few years ago that, that demonstrated very forcefully uh, how very little impact on government decision making um, the so-called voters have, and that it's really all about where the money is. Um, but the the corporate class, the capitalist class, of course, they're going to be doing everything they can to preserve their power. But most of that power, I think, is based upon a structure that's no longer sustainable. Um, so uh, I, for one thing, it depends very heavily on globalization. And that's going to be one of the first first things to go away. We're seeing that now with the uh, with the coronavirus. So what the relationship will be between um, the halls of power and, and the owner class as this catastrophe unfolds, I really have no idea. And you're right that in a sense, uh, you know, we, we have been practicing for decades what some people have called state capitalism, right? Where the, the, the state is simply designed to funnel um, uh, national resources into favored economic sectors. And that's certainly been happening with the petroleum industry. Uh, and the fossil industry all along, but I think there's a I think there's a real significant change on the horizon. Uh, even so, um, exactly what form it will take, I don't know. I'm I'm not enough of an economist or a historian or anything else to be able to put it all together. It's quite possible nobody is. We'll just have to wait and see. That's a that's the advantage to me of being a mathematician is I get what complexity really means in a very uh, uh, at a very basic fundamental level. Um, Complexity is a phenomenon that absolutely prevents you from knowing what's going to happen next. Um, you can guess, and your guesses can be informed guesses, but unless the guess is about something that's going to happen in the very near term, the likelihood of your guess having any relationship to reality goes down very, very quickly uh, with, with distance out into the future. It's just really hard to know. If you want to know what's going to happen, wait and see. You'll, you'll find out. We've previously interviewed on the show Arthur Keller, who is a French rocket scientist, and his specialty is complex systems. Mm -hmm. And this is our Achilles heel, yes. complexity. Mm -hmm. We saw that in Rome. You know, they got into overreach, and then, of course, their supply chains broke down and everything broke down. Yep. So, yeah, that, that interview with Arthur was really brilliant, hammering home the complexity issue. Now, there's one thing I'd like to talk about in terms of collapse. Let me just make this one point about complexity. Uh, it, it, is the, it is the Achilles heel, um, but, but it is also, I mean, it tells you the nature of systems, um, whether it's ecosystems or civilizations. They, they build until they reach a, a mature state where they're maximizing their use of the available resources, especially energy. And then something changes, and because of all that complexity, they have to go through a complexity collapse in order to go through the adaptive cycle and turn into something else. And that's the history of life on Earth. It also, interestingly, is the history of civilizations on Earth. And we're just finding ourselves now in, in kind of the, 
the, the first really global version of that taking place. And who knows what will happen as a result. Anyway, go ahead. I want to talk about the uh, significance of US dollar hegemony for the global economy. All oil has to be, or up until recently, has been sold in US dollars. Right. That has allowed the Federal Reserve to print money like there's yes. no tomorrow. That's right. At the moment, because of the tensions between uh, China and Russia, um, your rocket scientist of, of a president in the United States uh, has decided to launch trade wars against both of them. As a result of that, now they are trading oil in their own currencies. Yep. You know, this is what got Muammar Gaddafi murdered in, in, in Iraq. Sorry, it, yeah, it's what got it's, Muammar... In Libya, and, it, and it's, also, it's also the reason for the protracted economic warfare against Iran and Venezuela. Yeah, and this is one of the, my concerns is that I think the, the, the powers that be in the United States will fight to the death for U.S. dollar hegemony. Because, you know, that's, that's their balance sheet exposed. That's right. The minute, the minute they lose that, we see them... The, we know that there are enormous trillions of dollars of money being printed all the time, but it has to be worse than we know. The debt will be more than what they're telling us. Well, it's, it's not just that they're printing money hand over fist now. It's that they've been printing trillions of dollars for 70 years, and they're stashed all over the globe. And as soon as they start to lose their value, um, it, it will be a devaluation of a currency such as we've never seen before in history. Um, and on a scale we've never seen before in history, and it's inevitable, right? There's no way that system can be maintained, probably not even in the medium term. Um, it, and, 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 you know, what we're seeing here with, with Donald Trump and the situation going on with China, exactly the same thing that's going on with England and, and, and with Brexit in this respect, that uh, as the owner class has attempted to manage the collapse, which, remember, has been going on now since the 70s, as they've attempted to manage the collapse, they have increasingly disenfranchised um, the bulk of the working population. And politically, that's not sustainable. Um, there's a reason Trump got elected. There's a reason people voted for Brexit. Um, and, and that's the reason globalization is going away, because it can't continue unless it can enslave the populace, and they're not willing to be enslaved. Um, so that's, that's what's going to happen. And, and, and as a consequence, of course, petrodollar hegemony is its days are numbered. Um, and I don't know when that event is going to unfold, but as I wrote in the essay, uh, I, I don't see that there's any possibility of it not occurring sometime within the next, I don't know, two to ten years? I have no idea. Uh, but it's got to happen somewhere in there because the the things that allowed it to take place simply are no longer there. You know, you keep knocking the supports out from underneath, like that Jenga tower. At some point, it's coming down. You can't know when, but you know it's going to fall. That's pretty much, I think, how Guy and I see it. You know, we we study this issue pretty closely and broadly, not just in terms of the of the um, ecosystem, but also about all the extenuating circumstances around it. And we see it um, becoming more and more unstable daily. So I yeah. think that's why we are so concerned that this crash that is already underway can only accelerate. You know, um, Albert Bartlett had this great expression, and you will know all about Albert Bartlett. He's in, in your field. 
Uh, his expression was, quote, the greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to truly understand the exponential function. Yeah, that's true. I think it's our inability to understand complexity, though, now that's really biting us. Um, because, you know, people, people in charge get the exponential function, even if, if most people don't. But people in charge have not yet wrapped their heads around the consequences of complexity. Um, so, and, and in some ways, you, you don't want to say something like the coronavirus is a good thing. It's a horrible thing. It's already killed three quarters of a million people, and it's going to kill a whole lot more. Um, but a consequence is that it's going to bring that Jenga stack down sooner. Um, and because the Jenga stack always is getting taller, the sooner it falls, the less far it has to fall. Um, so that's, that's maybe some reason not to feel um, completely down in the dumps about all this. I think the next year, um, you know, the, the virus is, is going to be unfolding for at least the next year. Uh, pretty much uncontrollably at this point. That seems pretty plain. Uh, and consequently, the economy is rapidly running out of places to hide. Um, hold on to your butts. Oh, one of the things that keeps me relatively sane, I'll only, I'll only claim to being relatively sane, is uh, Gallo's humour. And, and I, in your presentation, you made the joke, quote, Gallo's humour, it's like food. Not everyone gets it. Right. A little dark humor is very healthy. Oh, I, th I really do think so. Some people think it's disrespectful. But, but I think you've, we've all got to manage ways, manage our own grief and manage our ways through this whole dichotomy. I, I noticed that you did a, uh, an interview with uh, Michael Dowd and his mm -hmm. post-Zoom conversations. I've been right. involved with that as well. Uh -huh. And um, it was... Sorry, I've, uh, I've lost my drift with uh, Michael Dowd's presentation. Um, but he's done an absolute wonderful sequence of uh, interviews. And there's a lot of Gallo's humour in that. Oh, that's right. He mentioned, or you mentioned, um, Stephen Jenkinson, the grief walker. Mm. Uh, it can, you know, Stephen who wrote Die Wise? Not familiar. Oh, okay. Well, he's a Canadian philosopher. And, and he, he talks a lot about um, Gallo's humour because he was in the death trade. He worked in hospice for many years. Yeah. And he talks about how we're a grief-denying culture. We are. We are. And that's, that's why I made that point earlier, that it's important for us not to get tricked into thinking that somehow things were supposed to be a whole lot better and therefore we should all feel tremendously sad. Because the fact is it's always been precarious and it's always been rather tragic and you know, you're never, the, the space any of us has between cradle and grave is not very big. Um, and, uh, and human life has always been punctuated by catastrophes. So live now. Absolutely. So how do you live in light of your message? If collapse is underway, and it clearly is, I think we all agree about that. What uh -huh. should we do and what do you do? And does our response vary with the speed and severity of collapse? Well, I think so. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, how fast is the water rising will have some, something to do with how quickly you have to climb and what you have to leave behind. Um, but I think that um, for anybody, no matter where they are uh, or how old they are uh, or what they do or, or what they think is going to happen, um, 
it's our relationships that make our lives what they are, and it's our relationships that give us the quality of life that we want. And I think the most important thing that anyone can do is to be a, a pillar and a part of their own community, wherever that happens to be. If you don't have a community, if you're feeling isolated, then that's the first thing to solve. That's the first problem to solve. Find a community to be a part of, um, because it's communities that are resilient, uh, it's communities that solve problems, it's communities that produce culture, and culture is what gives meaning to human life, it tells us who we are. Um, so, my own personal example, um, my wife and I, who are both academics, you know, that has offered us some advantages as well as some disadvantages. We were never going to be tremendously well-to-do. On the other hand, we were uh, never going to suffer want, um, not uh, as, uh, as a result of our professional lives. So uh, we moved to a rural area. Um, she teaches at uh, a rural university, rural college. I did until I retired. Um, and uh, I raise a garden, and I, I raise chickens, um, and I'm active in my church, and I'm active in my community, and I have great neighbors, um, and I live every day as fully as I may. And I think that's what everyone should be trying to do uh, in whatever mode or milieu works for them. That's an absolutely brilliant way to wind the interview up, Sid. Thank you very much for telling us those personal details. Uh, we've come to the end of our time, unfortunately. The hour goes pretty quickly. I'd like to thank all of our uh, listeners for uh, listening to the show. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of each month at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The next episode will feature a conversation with Dr. Morris Behrman, innovative cultural historian and social critic. Uh, if you missed the broadcast, you can find shows in the archives at prn.fm, Podbean, The Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, you can continue to follow NatureBet's last blog, guymcpherson.com, for further updates and interviews and speaking tours, and you can keep current with my work at uh, kevinhester.live. Thanks again, again to our guest, Sid Smith, our listeners, and to Afrazin for his music. Until, until next time, remember the dominant culture has been clever, but in the end, nature bats last.